Welcome to Climate Insiders, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of Europe's climate tech revolution, brought to you by Clementum Capital. I'm Johan Bernot, a general partner at Clementum, and I'll be your host. In each episode, I'll have one of Europe's top founders and investors, and we will try to understand how they think about climate, what has led to their success, and what are the best insights they can share with you to accelerate your climate journey. There will be a lot of terrific guests on this show, and we won't shy away from spikes, secrets, and contrarian views. To make sure you don't miss out on any episode and access all the insights, you can subscribe at climateinsiders.co. Hey guys, on today's show, we're receiving Caroline Valerud. She's partner at Valerud Ventures, a deep tech pre-seed investment firm. They are the first investors in Klarna and investors in green tech and deep tech companies like Midsummer, Swedish RG Factory, Satcube, and Graphmatech. Caroline has been an entrepreneur since the age of 14, and she's part of many startup journeys. Now she splits her time between two startups when, where she's chairman and co-founder, Volumental, creating custom shoes through the use of 3D scanning and AI, and Air Forestry, reinventing forestry with the use of electric drones. We will hear a perspective on the hands-on Valerud investment model, why Europe seems to trust more finance experts than entrepreneurs as fund managers, and we will discuss the different roles one can play in climate tech today. Let's go. Caroline, welcome to Climate Insiders. Thank you. It's great to be here, Jan. First of all, you just came back from maternity leave, uh, so congratulations. And now you're already you. going all in, <laughs> back to work, uh, taking board meetings, powering through uh, investments. But I'm imagining that it was good to take a little break from life. <laughs> well, it was, a, it was a break from one kind of life for sure. And it's really good being back as well. As a family office uh, with, you know, my parents and I working there, it, it's been, they've been very supportive and happy to have a grandchild. So nice. it's, uh, Wait, we'll, it's we'll get to well. that. I have a lot of questions mm -hmm. on, the, on the, the family dynamics. But first of all, uh, for people that don't know you, and I'm imagining that people outside of the Nordics might not necessarily know your family office. Could you briefly describe Valerud Ventures? So your yeah. fund size, your geography, the typical ticket size. Yeah. So Valerud Ventures is a family office. It's made up of three entrepreneurs, myself, my mother and my father, Jane and Bengt. And uh, we've all been entrepreneurs before. I started several deep tech companies, been CEO there, exited. And in 2016, we decided to start investing more together. And that was when I stopped being CEO of my baby startup, Volumental. And my mom just sold her startup and my dad left the consultant from where he was working. So since then, we've been working together specifically on deep tech for uh, the climate and for the living planet. And we invest generally up to a million euros per company. In the beginning, especially, we would start investing with less and then we would invest up to that amount. And now we are a little bit more flexible. The best investment we've done financially is Klarna, where we were the first investors. So as Klarna has grown, it means we've been able to invest more money in our companies. Uh, we invest mainly in Sweden and in very early stage deep tech. So, uh, and then we go in and work very actively with those founders. So max two companies per partner at a time. So we can spend like one or two or up to five days a week with that company in the beginning to help them get going. Exactly. So the main specificity of your fund is that you don't 
just invest in them, you join them. Can you explain how that works exactly? So you, first of all, are curious to know how you select the projects. Two yeah. of them is not a lot. And yeah. then how you how you decide whether you're gonna spend two or five days with the founders. Yeah, it's tricky to decide, but it is a very good filter for selection when it, it's not only that it has to be a great case and we like the team and we believe in the potential, but also we have to say, Okay, I actually want, or one of us three really wants to spend a couple days a week working at this company and working together with the team. And that means that uh, I guess we have an extra high bar in terms of uh, projects we feel really passionate about and teams that we feel, okay, these are people I really want to work with. So that's how we sort of select from the beginning. In terms of how much time we spend with the companies, it's really about what they need and how we can help. We're all sort of startup generalists. So if I I give the example of Volumental, the company I founded. I was CEO for the first three years. And then since then, I've been uh, executive chairman and helping the CEO in, in lots of areas. So as you know, a startup in the beginning, you don't have each of the executive positions filled. So I've jumped in and I've been kind of head, head legal, responsible for marketing, recruitment and people and talent, marketing, all these different areas. And and in addition to the general sort of board work. So we, we can jump in and do all those roles and also help more more generally in the beginning to make sure that the company doesn't make exactly the same mistakes uh, we've already made in previously companies, but rather hopefully find some some new and, uh, you know, a little bit more informed um, mistakes to make. Uh, that's probably the most hands-on model I've seen out there since you're one mm -hmm. of the co-founders. And that's also the ultimate smart money, right? So you allocate capital, intelligence, your network and active work, but it, it begs the question of the duration of your assignment and how does the team and other investors feel when you pull out, when you decide to leave the boat? So for example, Volumental, super active for three years, slowly, you know, divesting your time involvement. That's true. In that case, I think I just love being, I'm at Volumental's office right now and it's great by being here. So I spend quite a lot of time here still. I learn a lot. I'm still helpful to the company. In this case, it's just been, it's been a situation where I'm as active as the people in the team and the board want me to be. But of course, it's not great having like a, a full-time chairman and co-founder in the, like uh, helping in lots of different areas as the company matures and becomes more of a professional organization. So I think here it's quite natural and there's been no, so to say, like conflict between the different stakeholders, so to say, uh, in terms of how much I should be involved. And it's a really open conversation I have also with the CEO of the other company I'm working actively with now. I mean, every time we, or not every time, but at least once a month when we talk, it's like, okay, so what do you think? What could I do more of? What should I do less of? If you want me to change one thing, what would that be? And really try to act on that. Uh, so that I don't uh, either overextend or, or pull back too far. And how is the rest of the investors indicate? So the other investors, mm -hmm. particularly VCs, that seem to be, you know, to have a particular angle on this. How do they yep. feel when you're pulling out from an assessment? Let's, let's just call it a... Uh, I mean, it depends on, uh, a lot <laughs> on the specific <laughs> case, but uh, I mean, it's quite a natural transition and we're quite clear that as soon as there are specific executives in place and the company becomes more and more self-sufficient, so to say, it, it makes sense for us to pull out. We're not usually employees at the company, right? We're we're like a super active board member and, and kind of co-founder or bouncing board for the co-founders and, and management team. So yeah, I 
think that other investors like it when we're quite active. Of course, is that like if if it really helps the company, for example, like do a much better fundraising round, and you know when the company hits some crisis, we can really we have that time to go in and really work actively. But then there's also the fact that that over time, I mean, it is a trade off. Uh, you might want more of a division between the board and investors versus like the actual operating team, and it's never really been a problem. Usually, when the company gets a Series A round or so, it, it really makes sense to take a step back and become more of a standard board member. But it's something we discuss with the with the new investors or the investors coming in. Also, I mean, they're interested, of course, in who's on the team and and they want to know how you know if that means that I'm or my mom or dad are very active or more taking a step back. Yeah, well, so that, that so that makes sense, right? Uh, now, I want to use this as a proxy to a crucial point, and I want to back it up with important numbers, which, in, in my opinion, highlights one of the core investment problems in Europe. Um, if you take the scan of the U.S. you know ecosystem at top tier venture capital firms in the U.S., sixty percent of investors have experience working at a startup. At top VC firms, sixty percent of investors, so the vast majority, have been entrepreneurs or operators in startups. Yeah. Now. Coming to Europe, that's a bit of a different story. European VCs talk about being founder-friendly, hands-on, but the vast majority of them have never been actually running a startup or even worked in one. Uh, there's right. actually new data from Vauban suggesting that European VC ranks uh, remain heavily filled with former bankers, mm -hmm. consultants, private equity investors are low, and they're low on former startup operators. In the yep. UK, just 8% of investors have experience, uh, you know, firsthand uh, of what's like to be in a fast growing company. Isn't it uh, bonkers? Yeah. Did you say 8% in the UK? 8%. Yeah. You're So you're comparing a little bit because you said top US investors versus all European, but still, it seems likely that even in Europe, then it is a lot lower. And that's what I've experienced as well. Mm -hmm. I can understand that in a way that it has happened that way because of, well, I don't know, Why is actually. That? <laughs> Why is um, that? My experience. I have suggestions and you can pick the option that you think. Yeah. Okay. Go for it. Go for it. How about we turn it, you know, turn it yeah. around. So uh, I, I really see three main reasons, right? Either there's a lack of maturity of the European space, which means that mm. there's only been two to three generations of founder success stories versus 12 in the US since the 70s. Mm -hmm. So we haven't had enough capital recycling and entrepreneurs turning investors. That's option one. The second yeah. one is um, in Europe, we tend to value hard skills over soft skills. So hard skills is very much a financial driven or financial literacy structure processes, you know, on a deal uh, over soft skills uh, with, uh, you know, the American mindset, uh, judgment, psychology drive. This you know, a, a second option. And a third one, um, and I don't want to bias the answer here, but I think it's a more profound one. <laughs> It's a structural problem with a higher barrier to entry to become a fund manager in Europe. Uh, the gatekeepers in Europe uh, that are the makers or breakers of VC funds are banks, pension funds, government funds, and they're from a different generation. So they value and have more trust in finance and bankers' profiles yep. uh, because they invest in profiles that under they understand and that look uh, a lot like them. Both the profiles, but also uh, the way of communicating. Someone who's an entrepreneur, husband, will say, this can be massive, it can be great, like look at all the huge problems we're solving. Of course, this is going to be huge. Whereas, And that's quite different from the way a, a banker would explain it and show lots of graphs and Excel sheets and things. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I like all those three explanations. I don't know the stats on this, but if if we go back to point one, I assume that you're correct that there's been very many, there are many fewer entrepreneurs in general in Europe because we haven't 
been so entrepreneurial as long, meaning that there's just fewer with that mindset to, to choose from. That's fair. The second point, the hard versus more soft skills, I felt very personally like myself because I studied, um, I was a natural scientist at Cambridge. So I studied like neuroscience, genetics, zoology. And then in the UK and also in the US, which is sort of, I'm a bit culturally uh from there, I thought, okay, well, I'll go home to Sweden and I can get a job in a bank or like, I was actually not looking at banks, but I was looking at like consulting and other like strategy jobs. And they all said, wait, but you didn't study industrial economics or economics or fi finance. So, you know, we don't have a job for you. Go do a master's in finance and then come back. Yeah, the <laughs> Whereas in the Europe or the US, they'd say, oh, you have a great degree from Cambridge. You're smart. You know how to learn and you'll be able to learn the stuff on the job because you proven kind of that you're you're good at learning and you'll have lots of interesting skills from that field which will you know help in this that's so right. <laughs> that's very different as well and i i do think that's probably part of the problem that yeah you that, can definitely well, uh, yeah. come from a bachelor of art in ancient greek history and then become yes. a trader or yeah. <laughs> a fun yeah, i had several friends who did that in the uk and then i get home to sweden and i'm like hey biology it's a little bit more like hardcore in some ways than like history and then, and then they were getting banking jobs and i couldn't even get like a, a basic business job as my first job. So that's how I got a startup job. And that's, I'm very glad for it now uh, that I didn't end up on the consulting track, but uh, that's how I got my entrepreneurial journey started. So, um, so but it's a good question. Yes, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. And I think it's a big problem for European startups because it means, especially, I mean, lead investors always want to stick a board member on the startup board. And then if you have someone who has not really been there, especially, you know, it's very good maybe if you have between four and eight board members that one of them is really good at finance and understands, uh, you know, how to address the, the company for next investment, for loans, like the financial side. But the other people, the majority of people on the board should be people who are industry experts or somehow can can help with something, some other aspect of the company building. Uh, and I find that a lot of European startup boards will then be filled with like three or four investor representatives who are all, you know, have kind of a similar background. Uh, and that's, that's not helpful for those companies to grow. How do we solve that? Do you think more VC should emulate the Valorood model? <laughs> I think it will be hard because we've made a choice of focusing on a few, you you know, and it means we have to say no to, to hundreds of great startups, thousands of great startups every year. Uh, and I can I can understand that uh, a, a VC with a fund, they they want to invest in at least like 10 to 50 companies uh, or, uh, over, you know, the fund's lifetime. And we don't really do that. So I can say that's hard. But what, what you can do is instead of putting yet another finance person on the your investment, your portfolio's board, is that you look at, okay, you talk to the, the management team and say, okay, what are the biggest challenges? you see that the company will have in the coming two years and the type of experiences that you will have in the coming two years that you don't yet have represented in your company. And then ask around in your network, okay, who do we know that actually has already, for example, uh, expanded from Sweden to the US uh, or built, you know, transformed a, a sort of license model into more of a software as a service or worked with this specific type of distribution model, which we're working on or scaled up this industrial type of industrial process and find someone 
someone who has that expertise. And then, of course, as an investor, you still want to follow your investment, but maybe you can then ask, you know, to receive just the, the board reports or, or, or that the startup makes sure to, to be transparent about financials and stuff uh, on a quarterly basis or something. Also with investors who, who don't have a direct representative on the board. It's tricky, but that I think would be, I think that would be a, a massive lift for mm-hmm. European startups. Yeah, absolutely. Another way to emulate the value model is to start family offices only <laughs> and work with your dad <laughs> yeah. and your mom. I doubt that I will be able to do this. Uh, my mom still doesn't understand what I do. <laughs> uh, yeah. But can you can you speak a little bit about uh, the dynamics? How do you even split, you know, projects internally? And do you think it's more more founders that have this entrepreneurial, more families that have this entrepreneurial spirit should should emulate that? And the barrier to entry is is, is lowered over time, or no? It's really for an elite uh, of s- successful serial entrepreneurs. Good question. So most uh, family businesses, I guess, will have made their money somehow, uh, or the fam- mm-hmm. family offices kind of. So uh, say that they have been in the publishing business or the real estate business or something. So there is some core of expertise in an area. I see it would be really cool if more families that have made their money in that way would spend more uh, of their time and money and expertise helping, you know, the next generation of great technology in that field. And that's an easier way to get into it. And then going from that, say that you go from real estate to then real estate technology and maybe more uh, sustainable building materials. And then from there, you can go into more industrial, you know, and and that's an easier way maybe to come uh, into the field. Um, I think most investors will have an area that they like investing in. You know, and they want to do repeats of that type of model. Um, And I think that makes sense for most people. What we've said is if we've done a company of a certain type, we're like, oh, we don't really want to do something too similar because we want to try something new, learn something new. But yeah, I guess it it might be smarter, uh, and and we'd be uh, even wiser advisors uh, to the companies if we just went, you know, if we really dug into one even narrower uh, niche, niche. And, and focused yeah. on that. But that and I think how, is something one can do. Yeah. Yeah. Can you speak about the the, the dynamics on deal making? So how do you select projects? How do you uh, you know? Is there an investment committee around the dinner table? Yeah. Or everyone has their own channel based on on your emotional attachment to a particular vertical or a founder. Um, There's this level of trust where you kind of follow each other almost blindly if one is really attached to your project. Our investment committee is us three. I guess someone could veto a company if we really didn't like it. But if someone says, hey, I'm willing to spend two days a week on this for the next two years, that's a pretty strong you know, vote of confidence. So we try to support <laughs> in that case. In terms of the deal flow and where we get it from, it's quite varied. Our main deal flow is from being kind of known deep tech entrepreneurs. And we try to do events like this, like speak on podcasts and, and go to events and be helpful and like roundtables and, and things like that. So we get to know really early stage entrepreneurs already out at the, you know, the university tech incubators so that we get really good early deal flow from there. Uh, but actually the last few investments we've made, we've um, at least Air Forestry, where uh, mm-hmm. I'm now a co-founder and, and board member, uh, was actually a cold email we received 
receive from them. Um, And uh, and we now we're not we have too much going on right now. So we're not doing any new investments at the moment. Um, So we've turned that off on the website, but we've just had like a, a form on the website where you can fill in. And, and we would go through those and and uh, not uh, reply to all of them, but but the ones that were, you know, relevant, we would really look at them, even if they weren't a warm intro. And that's because I think for many of those really great tech innovators, uh, they might not have that fully formed team yet and might not know how to write a great investor email or how to do the found the find the warm connection and, and we don't we want to then find that person and 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 help that amazing technology create that original team and you know so they can start commercializing and scaling up uh we don't really mind if the team is not fully formed in that sense um yeah so it's a little bit different a good good segue into one of the verticals you 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 picked uh you know uh, your next you know avenue is air forestry air forestry yes. is as deep tech as it gets uh and definitely aligned with the climate fight so uh, yes. just a um, high level they're reinventing forestry through the use of drones electric drones you have to imagine the size of the drone is like a, a flying taxi that you know, hopefully <laughs> yeah it's six point two meters in diameter so it's it's a very Genons. large drone yeah uh, definitely applicable to Sweden Sweden has a, a huge coverage of forests and how did you pick such a crazy venture <laughs> which sounds like science fiction <laughs> yeah coming from so... volumental that does just yeah. uh, basically three uh, D printing or three three D analysis and AI for three D scanning for yes. Well, just, I mean, Volumental is, is uh, very, it's very much high tech as well. And especially if you think that we actually, we were founded 10 years ago and then there was no such thing as 3D scanning from home. And we were the first people like to have any technology that could do that in an easy way. But yeah, so that was. You would agree that the stretch project. is not obvious. <laughs> no, you're, that's true that they're, they're not, they're in quite different verticals. Uh, I agree with that. So how do we find air forestry? Well, uh, as I mentioned, it was a cold email as we realized what this was, we just realized like, wow, this is what is needed for forestry. Forests are a huge part of capturing carbon, storing carbon, all the biomaterials we need for uh, moving away from from plastics and uh, other like nasty building materials towards wood. They're an amazing resource and we are taking very badly care of them uh, at the moment in the world. Air Forestry basically figured out, okay, at last we are now at the stage where drones are good enough and batteries are good enough that we can actually do the logging, or well, thinning in this case. So when you thin out, you remove some of the trees to let the remaining trees grow uh, better, which is a very important forest management uh, initiative. So um, you can do that from the air. And compared to other applications where you use drones, which are meant to go in cities or need very long transport, uh, this is a situation where there are so many forest roads in Sweden. So the average cycle to go out to a tree, uh, delimit, cut it, and then lift the whole tree out and back to the road takes an average of 90 seconds. So you can do a few of those rounds and then you can switch the battery and let the, that one charge and then go out again. So it's it's a much uh, closer application uh, today and doesn't require such a massive battery, which means we can use more of the the drones uh, lifting capacity for actually lifting out trees, uh, small trees. So. There's also lower regulation because you're not transporting people, only tra- transporting trees in dead zones. Yes. There's no, uh, you know, 
there's no houses it's not no urban there's yeah and there's still a lot of regulatory hurdles but we're getting through them uh in a very nice pace now so that's cool so yeah so that was like the 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 technical aspect we realized wow this can be done and the current way it's currently being done is just terrible the machines that go in mm -hmm. today weigh between 15 and 30 tons you need two of them and they like just uh destroy uh you need 20 percent of the forest like floor area just to move these trucks forward meaning that although those that's 20 percent of the forest which you just have to remove just to go in and do the thinning and the, and the forest management services and you get a lot of damage to the soil the root systems the the ecosystems in general so that was huge and then we saw that the team was really excellent so the three co-founders um had been working on really relevant aspects of this for a long time so the ule who's now the ceo he had been working with skogfor the Swedish forest research um, organization uh, for eight years on projects doing specifically um, autonomy and electrification of forest uh, systems like uh, these big uh, machines going in. The other co-founder, Mauritz, who is CTO, he uh, is one of the leading experts in Europe on electric flight and has been working on electric flight as a researcher for many years. And the third co-founder, Marcus, he's uh, actually built nature management companies from scratch and understands like how all, you know, all the aspects that go into that uh, when you're not just working on a nice little app and software, but having to go out and working with, with real people, real forests, lots of these production teams. Uh, nature's a lot less uh, predictable and kind than just having an app on, on a phone. So, so that was the core founding team. And there was one um, tech developer employed at that time. So they, they, it was a really amazing team. So those were two of the aspects that meant that we were really excited about them. And obviously we uh, spent quite a lot of time going through and figuring out if it really seemed to be feasible and if it was a, if there were good barriers to entry. That's something we really like with the deep tech side, right? If there's something that it's, it's hard to do and each of those problems you then solve means that you have more and more barriers to entry for other players. And ideally it means that you were so early in a space that you were able to patent a lot as well or or some other way of, 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 you know, protecting the area so that you don't, you know, you're not just relying on which company has the largest marketing budget, but you can uh, rely on who has the best, actually the best technology uh, and make sure to scale that up. What's fascinating also about your story is that you come from a generalist background so that the next gig, the next assignment could have been anything. Could have been fusion, could have been, you know, hydrogen, <laughs> and you picked forestry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe there's an affection for forest. There's something deep inside you that was kind of triggering you an uh, emotional connection. But anything that's applicable to others, the question I get from people that are trying to join the climate fight is, uh, should I be an investor or should I be an operator? Mm. Uh, so th for that, there's many roles in between, right? So you could be a board member, you could be an advisor, so forth and so on. So that's kind of the first uh, angle of, you know, of uh, to read this question. And the second is, um, which sector? It is so broad. Climate yeah. is not a niche sector anymore. It's just so vast. What's your take yeah. on this? How do you place in sort of the four quadrant matrix your bet and where right. you will, uh, you know, allocate five years, 10 years of your life? Yeah, I guess there's many very good ideas that come our way, but there's not that many that I feel that that take all the boxes in terms of, wow, this is really neat. And I want to work with this team for a few years. So 
I wasn't specifically looking for a forestry related company uh, when we found air forestry. What I was looking for was something biotech or biology related. Since I'm a biologist by training uh, and I, I really, I find like the cell level and, and protein level biology incredibly exciting. And I'd love to do a company in that space. This is more ecosystem level, also very exciting, but I'm very glad to be combining biology with, um, with entrepreneurship and deep, deep tech. Uh, in terms of like, uh, yeah, what, the, the next area, I think probably I'll, I'll stay in that field. For others who want to get into climate tech, I think it's really important to what we discussed before about having like actually useful skills and having done it before. If you join a startup at, you know, a variety of stages, uh, that is, you know, scaling up. You just, you learn so much at actually working at a small company compared to what you learn at an MBA or or a business master's. So doing that, even if it's not a climate company, is a very good way to get a general education and understanding for all the parts. And that will make you a much better advisor board member for climate companies. That's one way of doing it or going in and really becoming an expert in something. And I don't think it matters so much what within the climate space. There's so many problems to solve and we need people to go out, you know, in, in lots of these different niches and do things. The problem is when you don't decide and you just get paralyzed by the, the climate crisis. And, and the answer, paralysis, at least yes. that I've found, yeah, is to say, okay, well, I'm going to go like hardcore in one direction, learn as much as possible in that area and become a real expert in that. And that way you, you're much more valuable than, than uh, you know, you're, you're a more valuable partner uh, to a, a company specifically in that space than, than you've just done a little bit of everything uh, and haven't really you're committed to, to learning a lot about one area and, and really committing to something. So that's uh, a general- It's a uh, and gradual step yeah. process then. And mm. you learn and then you uh, recalibrate. If you feel that you've gone in the wrong avenue, right? In the, in the wrong sector, you can always recalibrate investor versus entrepreneur i get this question a lot um investor yeah. seems a almost de-risk avenue you it, it um it caters to people that are more generalists or analytical so they can you know stimulate their their intellectual stimulation more because they they have more problem sets to to tackle what's your view on this and what would you advise oh i don't think it's true that i think that, that it's just a different set of of challenges and uh you you're dealing with as an entrepreneur or or an investor uh one i'd say in a lot maybe it's in a lot of ways easier if you get a job as an investor i'd say that's less stressful than being an entrepreneur because as an entrepreneur you're uh the ball the really stops with you and you have lots of these direct reports and there are so many fires all the time uh, and it's so <laughs> tricky to prioritize correctly and and there's no one to just pat you on the back and say oh yeah you're like you know if you just do the things that your boss told you to do you'll be fine like that, that doesn't exist as an entrepreneur <laughs> so i think that being an entrepreneur is is more challenging and you learn a lot in terms of which one to pick i don't know how easy it is i'd, I'd say it's probably pretty hard to get a job as an investor in, in climate mm -hmm. isn't it just like that Whereas uh, going into a startup and working on a big impact problem at some level of the company feels like it's a slightly easier and, and growing field. And also easier startups in general, if you do well and you prove yourself and you work hard and you like have an ownership mentality as an employee, you can get sucked up very fast and get bigger and bigger projects. Whereas as an investor, it's trickier to have that really quick career progression. 
I mean, I was CEO at 22 when I founded my own company. <laughs> I learned a lot in that uh, in that process. You don't have to be CEO directly, but but even if you just join as an early employee, you just get to encounter so many uh, more problems and you get to solve so many more things than, uh, than and be responsible for more things than if you join a more sort of traditional and static organization like an investor. Did I answer your question? I, I, I think so. I think closing the mm -hmm. loop on everything we discussed, yes. right? The fact that Europe has definitely a shortage of entrepreneur, you know, entrepreneurial minded investors. Um, and you're saying that it's also a gradual process to kind of find your path. It seems to me that the, the best sequence would be to start in a startup to gain operational experience, understand how yeah. complex, yeah. get the reality check, but also yeah. develop your network and then, uh, you know, understand how you, uh, an organization can, can scale. And then at, at some point transition to become an investor. It's a more natural flow than the other way around coming from an investor. It seems like it's a more natural flow hearing you to be, to go from entrepreneur to become an entrepreneur or at least join a startup and then become an investor versus the other way around? I think so. The problem with uh, <laughs> with going directly to being an investor and then going into a startup is that you get expensive habits, I think, as an investor. And it's very hard to go mm -hmm. back to uh, to the the noodles and, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and freebie lifestyle of an entrepreneur uh, once you get used to, to those expensive habits. So, so so it's good to, the way to do it in that case is to make sure even as an investor or whatever you go into in the, in the corporate world where you're getting a good salary to uh, not increase your expenses so much, build that buffer so that you you dare take the step. Because it's very hard once you've got those comforts to take a step back and say, okay, I'm just going to earn like two, three thousand euros a month now for, for you know, a year. And I don't know if this is going to, this is going to fly or not. Uh, and I don't know if I'll have a salary in six months time. And so I'd say that it in that sense as well, it's better to go to the entrepreneurial side first or go and become an expert, like research some topic which is relevant for the green energy transition and the climate crisis. And, and then from there, transition in as, a, as an expert into a, into a startup or uh, an expert advisor to an investor. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great suggestion. Uh, Caroline, are you ready to jump into a rapid fire round? So really, yes. you know... I give you two options, option A, option B. You give me your preferred option just uh, with a short explanation. Um, yes. So first question is, thesis first or people first? How do you select which projects to get personally involved in? Thesis first, since we almost always get an email first or some pitch, uh, and then we don't really see much of the people, uh, but we do see the idea behind it. So thesis. Uh, but then, of course, people are very important uh, as, a, as a second uh, step, but thesis first. Now, when you look at Valerie Adventures and your family office, would you rather scale up the model or keep it niche? We'll keep it niche in the sense of we don't want to hire a bunch of people. However, my parents have said that they're probably on their last startups now, so they're not going to add you know, at most like one new investment, maybe they'll do uh, in this model. And then it's up to me to set what I think we should do with Voller Adventures going forward. And uh, I'm not sure what that is yet. Uh, I don't want to, I, I really love working in a team. And that's why working so actively with the startups is wonderful because I'm part of this entrepreneurial team working towards a goal. I don't think I want to become an investor on my own. So I'll need to find a team to do that or change around 
the model. And that's a project work on to the think next about generation doing... uh, family investors, but it might take 18 to 20 years to get there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I think it's uh, this is a project for 2023 where I really need to think about where uh, we should bring Voller Adventures, uh, considering that um, my parents will slowly be working less. And uh, I want uh, like uh, a, a fulfilling and, and fun job, which also does very good for the environment. So let's see where that ends up. Happy to help you think this through yeah. and offer suggestions. <laughs> yeah, and... yeah, I think uh, I'd love that. And then next year, I think this year, there's a lot of things to do. But uh, next year is, is my year for, for working on that. Uh, All right. So I'd appreciate the input. And last question, uh, bigger funds versus specialist funds. This is also a question we get a lot. What does Europe need more to accelerate the climate transition? So enormous funds in AUM, assets under management, or more specialist funds that are more nimble, but they're just more efficient. Can I say both? <laughs> if I had to pick, if they're generalist with a climate focus or uh, somehow yeah. energy, that, that sounds that sounds good. I think it 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 helps the startups when the investors are very clear on their investment thesis. So, for example, the ones that say, "Okay, you need at least to solve a gigaton of emissions or whatever," then then some startups will know, "Okay, we're you know we're not." doing that we're solving like biodiversity instead or something but then you'd want i'd like to see more investors then that are also doing like looking at other aspects of green technology because we need uh, a lot of it there's so many areas where we could be doing a lot better and we need to work on all of them so i'm glad there's a lot of startups out there uh, and investors out there that can look at those things here here thanks so much caroline for this great conversation really enjoyed it yeah, yes, thank you, Clementum, for, uh, for hosting. Nice to talk to you today. All right, thank you. Ciao, ciao, and thanks, guys, for listening in. Uh, if you want to listen to more great investors, don't forget to subscribe and talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Climate Insiders, the leading climate tech podcast in Europe. If you've enjoyed this, be sure to subscribe at climateinsiders.co. Climate Insiders is brought to you by Clementum Capital, a late C to Series A climate tech VC. To learn more about Clementum Capital, apply for funding, or become an LP, visit clementum.com.